Welcome to The Bone Club. The Bone Club is a global network for orthopedic surgeons and allied health professionals to share knowledge across geographical and organizational boundaries. We are an open community that celebrates diversity and inclusivity. All practitioners in musculoskeletal health are welcome to join us. Please visit thebone.club in order to learn more. The following is a recording from one of our rooms on Clubhouse. It is live, unedited, and published with the consent of those involved. Opinions belong to those involved and do not necessarily reflect those of the Bone Club. This is not medical advice. Now, onto the podcast. Please enjoy. All right, everybody. Um, welcome to the Bone Club. So this is our sixth journal club. Uh, th- this is a routine that we do every Sunday evening. And um, I want to welcome everybody to tonight's discussion, which is going to be on flat foot uh, deformity. We are joined today by a whole host of people who are experts within the field, and we're really grateful for everyone to give up their time um, over the next hour or so whilst we talk everything flatfoot. My name is Akib Khan. I'm an orthopedic registrar in London in the UK, and I'll get all of my fellow panelists to introduce themselves in a moment. But before we do, I just want to set the scene. Um, There are a few party hats in the audience, which means people are new to Clubhouse, and we are streaming this live on YouTube as well for people who don't have iPhones and who have Android devices. So we have um, plenty of people who are watching us on YouTube at the moment, and they will have the opportunity to contribute by asking questions in the in the chat, and we will um, ask those questions to our panelists as we go on. So um, Clubhouse, as you all know, is a uh, audio-only interface where we can discuss topics uh, which are pertinent to various topics, and tonight's topic is to do with flat foot deformity. And uh, we have a lot of foot and ankle surgeons from around the world who are joining us who are going to go over three papers um, with the senior authors present and uh, subsequently discuss various aspects of the papers and also the condition in general. Now, before we begin and before we go through introductions, just some general housekeeping rules. Um, So this room is going to run for about 60 to 75 minutes. We usually at the end do stay behind a little bit um, for the medical students who may have questions about the um, condition and may want to ask them in a more informal environment, but the panelists aren't obliged to stay uh, if they have other things to do. If you're in the audience and you want to participate, we welcome that. The beauty of this um, Clubhouse platform is that you can raise your hand by pressing that button on the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. That will alert the moderators to the fact that you want to make a comment or you want to say something, um, and one of the moderators will bring you up onto the stage. Please do mute your microphone once you get on the stage and wait to be called upon. This evening, the moderators will be myself, there's also Andy, and there's also Lucky. One of the things you're probably going to notice is that we're going to be calling um, everyone by their first name, but that's to do with the actual platform. So I do apologize if anyone is offended. Um, We're we're flattening the hierarchy here, and we're really just having a nice discussion amongst colleagues and friends. Um, So hopefully everyone's okay with that. In terms of other housekeeping... um, What I want to say is we basically um, will ask people to introduce themselves when they do come up to talk. That introduction should only last about 10 seconds, um, and it really gives us an opportunity to hear what your point is. Because we have people who are listening on YouTube and people who are going to be listening to the podcast afterwards, um, it's important that you you do say your name before you make any comment, just because some people um, are visually impaired or they may not have access to the app. So please do say your name and then say your point afterwards. If you are on stage and you want to respond to a comment by someone else who has just said a comment, uh, then wait for them to finish what they're saying and then unmute your microphone. 
that will alert the um, panelists and the moderators to the fact that you want to say something, in which case your turn will be next and you can respond to whatever comment it is that you would like uh, to make. Every 15 to 20 minutes or so, we will refresh the room. That means we're just going to make sure we're staying on topic and that any new joiners are aware of where we're up to in the discussions. We do have a recording tonight, so I want to make everyone aware that um, uh, this will be recorded and we are going to have this on our podcast, which is a live unedited version of this room. Uh, we've published about three of these so far. So the fourth one will be uh, this journal club. And that means that your contribution tonight will have a much wider reach, uh, reach on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and online as well. I'll encourage all of you to follow the speakers up on stage um, because the more you follow them, the more likely it is you're going to be dragged into rooms that they're talking about um, interesting stuff to do with orthopedics as well. So, so make sure you do click on everyone's faces and do follow the uh, panelists tonight. Now, before we um, uh, go on to the introductions in terms of the order of things for tonight, after I've finished my little spiel, we're going to have uh, three of my registrar colleagues go through each of the papers. They have been given strict orders to keep it to four minutes each. Following that, we are going to uh, let the um, the authors of the papers have a word about the papers that they've written and what it was they were trying to get across and if we've missed anything. And then we'll have a general discussion about flat foot deformity. So. Without further ado, what I'm going to do is first call on um, Andy to unmute himself, introduce himself uh, as he's one of the fellow moderators, uh, and then we'll go on to Lucky, and then we'll go uh, across the stage. So Andy, over to you. Thank you, Akib. Um, uh, I'm Andy Goldberg. I've got painted face in the, uh, um, in, in the picture here. Um, I got very excited by uh, Akib's sort of vision for Bone Club. and. Realistically, Bone Club is an open forum to share knowledge across organisation and geographical boundaries, uh, especially sort of developing the next generation of orthopaedic surgeon um, across the world, really. So it's apt that we're using the next generation social media platform, um, which allows anywhere, anyone, anywhere in the world, really, to join in. Um, and uh, it's a new thing, so um, bear with us as, as this thing develops. Um, tonight's topic is flat foot reimagined okay so we've all either got or treated uh, patients with flat feet um, and the problem is that there's really very little consensus on not only the relevance of flat feet its classification and its treatment and so today we're going to discuss the topic and i'm so honored to have such um an esteemed uh, set of global experts really who, who are leading the way and trying to reimagine this this topic um, and uh, they're coming from the US, the, uh, 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 South America, uh, Canada, um, uh, and, and the UK, and, and it's, it's a very exciting panel. Mark Myerson has just um, rang me and said that uh, he's uh, currently in the, in the freezing cold depths of Denver, um, mountain biking um, with uh, Reynolds in his hands. So he's going to be joining us in, in perhaps a few minutes as soon as his hands warm up. Um, and he'll dial in. So um, uh, uh, we're looking forward to having Mark join us. And I suggest that what we start with is um, go round with some introductions in the top, um, moving clockwise. Um, so, Cesar, if you want to uh, introduce yourself, please. Sure. Well, this, uh, when you think you have things go think you have things over with social media, then you get to a new platform. So I was a little bit struggling here. But it's, uh, my name is Cesar Cesar Neto. I'm a foot and ankle surgeon, originally from Brazil, currently practicing in the US, uh, University of Iowa, 
and um, been trying to be very active in uh, uh, academics and research. And my my main focus is uh, flatfoot, or as we recently recommended uh, or proposed a new nomenclature, progressive collapsing foot deformity. It would be the symptomatic or the progressive flatfoot. Uh, it's a great honor to be here, Andy. Thanks for the invitation. Very happy to be part of this uh, uh, world-renowned uh, roster of speakers. Uh, so thank you so much. That's great. Uh, Lucky? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Lucky Jersilen. I'm a foot and ankle surgeon um, from London. Um, it's really nice to see so many um, friends and, and colleagues, but also experts uh, in in this uh, interesting topic and my job is to try and pick their brains and get your questions across so so don't hesitate to get involved great that's um fabulous pa parisa uh hi i'm paris i'm of the uh, northwest thames trainee registrars with an interest in foot and ankle so looking forward to being able to present this paper this evening thanks for having me so paris so that's a resident for people from the other side of the pond exactly Okay, um, now let's move on to uh, Dr. Alistair Younger. Hello, hi, I'm new to this platform, as you can tell, because my first name is Doctor, I must have put it in wrong. Um, but um, I thought that was actually Martinez Richter until I realized it was my face there. Uh, anyway, I'm phoning, I'm in, calling in from Vancouver in Canada. I'm a, a foot and ankle surgeon um, over in Vancouver, part of UBC. Uh, thanks so much for the invite. Um, and I think uh, there's a little Canadian history in here too. Um, if you want to <clears throat> understand why Flatfoot has been so ignored, uh, it goes back to a study done by Harrison Beath many years ago showing that Flatfoot was asymptomatic and shouldn't be operated on, which I think is one of the reasons why I was so confused about this at the current time. Anyway, my introduction. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. Um, that, that's, there's a, a very famous Doctor Who in the UK, and, and uh, I'm sure you're, you're now going to be uh, uh, immortalised as a legend. Um, thank you, Doctor. Um, over now to uh, uh, well, Dr. Christian Ortiz. I'm Christian Ortiz. I currently work in Santiago, Chile, as Chief of the Foot and Ankle Department. And I'm also president of the International Federation of Foot and Ankle Society. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you, Andy, for the invitation. That's um, awesome. Uh, thank you, Christina. Um, Akib, uh, uh, you've introduced yourself, so let's move to Abby. Uh, thanks, Prof. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Abhinav. I'm an orthopedic registrar uh, resident, uh, also in Northwest London, interested in neurodim and uh, trauma outcomes. I'm uh, excited to be here this evening. Thanks. That's great. And uh, Stephen. Stephen, you'll have to unmute yourself. So if you press the button in the bottom right. I got it, yeah. Again, you can guess I'm new to this platform, but I'm Steve Bendel. I'm an orthopedic surgeon based in Brighton, Sussex. Um, background was both as present about uh, six years ago as past TPD, um, an examiner for the Intercollegiate board for about 10 years. Um, again, honored to be here and happy to contribute. Thank you, Steve, um, and on, honored to have you here. Um, let's move on now to uh, Dr. Rick Brown. Hi, Andy. Thank you for inviting me. I'm a consultant for medical surgeon from Oxford and 
senior lecturer at the University of Oxford and uh, also the chairman of the BOFAS Education Committee. And we've really, BOFAS, tried to use every type of uh, modality to teach from face-to-face -face teaching and, of course, with webinars. I'm looking forward to seeing how this new technology works. My clinical background, I enjoy and practice all aspects of foot and ankle surgery, but particularly coming to this topic of the flat foot, I'm really interested to learn more about trying to work out the uh, key question of uh, how you can predict the adolescent flat foot, which ones of those are going to go off and become painful in later years. But thank you, Andy, for inviting me. Brilliant. Shall we go on to Andy Molloy? Hi, thanks very much for the invitation. I think this is a, a, a brilliant idea for a platform uh, for discussions such as this. I'm a consultant uh, orthopaedic surgeon specialising in foot and ankle up in Liverpool, uh, honorary uh, clinical senior lecturer at the University of Liverpool, um, and a large research interest, particularly in uh, flat feet. So I'm thoroughly looking forward to the discussion this evening. Brilliant. And Kartik? Hi, my name is Kartik Lokishetty. I'm a North West London orthopedic resident or registrar as well. Thank you. Okay. Uh, and over to Mark Mason, would you mind uh, introducing yourself uh, in 10 to 20 seconds? Hello. Hi. Yes. Hello, everyone. I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I was running late. I just got off the mountain on a, on a, uh, a rather long bike ride, and I'm unfortunately a little bit hypothermic i apologize i'm it's perfect timing mark you just you just you just come in and join just at the time when we were about to introduce you so um, um <laughs> over, over to you okay so hello everyone this is mark myerson and um I, I don't suppose i require much introduction but it's uh it's very nice to be part of this new venture so adventure as well so um here i am so is it uh, tell me what uh oh, i'm sorry i'm a little bit cold guys so, uh, so what, what what's like going to happen say? What, what's going to happen now mark is that we're going to have um uh, uh three of the um trainees present the papers yeah. all of us are going to mute the microphones and we're going to keep quiet for the next 10 minutes while they present and then yes, we're going to then we're going to ask um oh. uh for uh for your commentary Lovely. Okay, I'll, I'll mute my microphone and just listen and shut up then. Oh my God. Thank okay. you. Thank you everyone for joining. Um, so shall we start with the first presentation then? So I think we have Kartik Lagashetti who's going to um, give us an overview of the classification and nomenclature progressive collapsing foot deformities. Over to you Kartik. Thanks Akib. Um, so this is a topical review in Foot and Ankle International published in 2020. The authors are nine world authorities on foot and ankle surgery, bookended by Dr. Myerson and Dr. De Cesar Neto, who we have this evening. The paper presents a discussion on a pathology that may be more commonly known as adult acquired flat foot deformity, but the group here would like to rename that as progressive collapsing foot deformity. The central thesis here is that our prior understanding of this pathology is incorrect. Historically, we've been taught that adult flat foot deformity is driven by dysfunction of the posterior tibial tendon, but the authors begin by describing the three-stage classification of posterior tibial tendon dysfunction by Johnson and Strom, which we're 
all probably very familiar with, presented in 1989. And with each stage, there's increasing pain, increasingly fixed deformity, increasing weakness to heel rise, and greater prevalence of arthritic changes. A fourth stage was added by Dr. Blumen and Dr. Myerson in 1997 to describe a fixed, rigid hindfoot valgus, uh, which requires triple fusion. Now, Dr. Blumen and Dr. Myerson recognized really with great humility that their previous work did not detail the complex combinations of deformities in the midfoot, hindfoot and ankle, which occurred in association with the posterior tibial tendon dysfunction. So their revised work in particular expanded on stage two of the disease where hindfoot valgus predominates. There was increased focus on various deformities of the mid and forefoot, and it also discussed radiographic findings in greater detail, such as disruption to Mary's line, loss of calcaneal pitch, and changes to the bone around the angle of Gisane. It also included a number of surgical options, including medial displacing calcaneal osteotomies, cotton osteotomies, medial column fusions, lateral column lengthenings, and deltoid reconstructions, uh, which weren't always present or discussed earlier on, and this indicates how far they'd taken foot and ankle surgery in the preceding decade. However, the expert consensus group of authors here in 2020, which of course included Dr. Myerson and Dr. Neto, agreed that there remain issues with the current classification systems. They questioned the value of stage one disease at all, identified by Johnson and Strom uh, really as PTT pain, gastroc tightening, mild hindfoot valgus, whether surgery was indicated here. And furthermore, they argue that the stages are not a continuum and moving to the next stage is not an inevitability. And from the paper, it seemed to me the consensus group aimed to do several things. Number one, consider the hindfoot, midfoot and forefoot pathology as a complex 3D deformity. Note that there's a contribution of, rather than a dominance of, posterior tibial dysfunction to the collapsing foot. Number three, they wanted to include flexibility and stiffness as key examination findings. And number four, maybe reduce dependence or radiological findings. So the proposed classification system for what they now term progressive collapsing foot deformity asks us to assess five areas. A, the presence of hindfoot valgus. B, the presence of midfoot or forefoot abduction. C, the presence of forefoot varus or medial column instability. D, the presence of pericalar subluxation or dislocation. And E, the presence of ankle instability. If there is a positive finding in these five areas, they ask that we classify it either as flexible, stage one, or rigid, stage two. So as a simple example, we have a patient with flexible hindfoot valgus deformity and pain in the sinus tarsi and under the tip of the fibula. There is fixed forefoot uh, various deformity and a stable ankle on examination and weight-bearing radiographs. So that patient will get a 1A for flexible hindfoot valgus, a 2C for the rigid forefoot varus, and a D for the peritalar subluxation. So that would be a 1A, 2C, D. And that's it. Um, I, for one, think it's elegant and it will assist in every producible and understandable diagnosis. And it certainly reminds registrars like me to hone my physical examination skills and seek answers there and not in the MRI or CT first. Thanks, Aki. That was a fantastic summary. Thank you so much, Kartik. Before we have any comments on, on that paper, we're actually going to go through the other two papers as well, and then we'll have a group discussion from the um, authors. So we're going to go over to Parisa next, who's going to go... Um, through the three-dimensional distance and coverage maps in the assessment of peritalar subluxation in progressive collapsing foot deformity. Over to you, Parissa. 
Lovely, thanks, Akib. Um, so I'm looking at a paper by Dr. De Cesar Neto's group from the Department of um, Ortho and Rehab in the University of Iowa, looking at three-dimensional distance and coverage maps in the assessment of peritalar subluxation and progressive collapsing foot deformity. Uh, the aim of this paper was to use weight-bearing CTs to assess peritalar subluxation in patients with this deformity. It's a complex three-dimensional multifocal and multiplanar pathology, so the use of the weight-bearing CT in a three-dimensional format could be able to look at the valgus anatomy of the subtalar joint and the presence of the sinus tarsi and subfibular impingement. The hypothesis of this paper was that distance mapping would identify the medial facet of the subtalar joint as a superior marker for peritalar subluxation rather than the posterior facet, which is the present gold standard. In terms of methods, this is a level three evidence paper with a case control study. There's a retrospective analysis of weight-bearing CTs from 20 patients with stage one PCFD, uh, i.e. flexible deformities from Dr. Myerson's classification system. Exclusions to this study included patients that had had a prior fracture or surgical treatment for the deformity of ankle um, or subtalar arthritis, rigid deformity and class E deformities, including valgus ankle tilt or deltoid insufficiency. This was compared to 10 control patients who had incidentally had weight-bearing CTs to evaluate the foot for other pathology, including ankle pain or trauma to the foot and ankle. They used the CT of the contralateral foot being analysed as a control. In terms of data analysis, they looked at 3D distance mapping to characterise joint coverage and joint space, with joint coverage being defined as a percentage of articular area with a distance mapping of less than four millimetres. However, when you got down to less than 0.5 millimetres, this was signified as impingement. 3D distance measurements were done at the subtalar joint articular facets, so the anterior, middle and posterior facets, as well as the sinus tarsi and subfibular regions. Coverage maps were also created using the distance mapping to show areas of adequate joint interaction, joint subluxation and impingement. And in terms of data analysis, student t-tests or Wilcoxon tests were used to assess the differences between the control and PCFD groups with a p-value of less than 0.05, uh, equal to or less than 0.05, considered statistically significant. In terms of the results, as a baseline, there were no significant differences between the patients in the PCFD and control group in terms of characteristics. There was no significant differences in the mean distances between any of the articular surfaces or subregions. In terms of coverage, there was a decrease in the articular regions of the subtalar joints uh, in the PCFD group compared to the control group. And there was also a significant increase in joint uncoverage at the subtalar joint middle facet of the PCFD group, but not the anterior or posterior facets. There were areas of impingement increased in the sinus tarsi and subfibular regions in the PCFD groups versus the control group. And interestingly, all subtalar joint facets showed a lower coverage in healthy controls than previously reported in the literature. This may be because true weight bearing was involved in the study, so there was more subluxation than in previous simulated loading, and also an improvement in 3D measurement coverages. In terms of limitations of the study, the authors themselves have stated these in terms of controls were taken from patients with contralateral foot and ankle injuries, so there may be some confounding from an antalgic stance. Stage one patients were evaluated in terms of flexible deformities in those with progressive collapsing foot deformity. And ideally, this would be in the future compared to those with also stage two deformities. 
Finally, clinical outcomes were not assessed, which limits, limits the immediate clinical implication of the findings with no reported patient outcomes. However, as very useful initial conclusions in subtalar joint uncoverage in patients with progressive collapse of, collapsing foot deformity, only the middle facet of the subtalar joint shows consistent and highly significant increases in uncoverage in the PCFD groups versus the controls. Coverage maps may be able to identify significant changes related to sinus tarsi and subfibular impingement, which may be responsible for the lateral sided pain associated with PCFD and quantifying peritalar subluxation at the middle facets may provide the optimal tool to detect early PCFD progression to potentially optimize discussion, uh, decision making on ideal, ideal timing for interventions. So in summary, the study is looking at the potential for use of 3D weight bearing CTs and distance mapping and coverage mapping of middle facet subluxation to support the early detection of patients with PCFD at high risk for collapse to assist with clinical decision making with respect to which patients will be will require or be spared a hindfoot fusion procedure as part of their surgical treatment. And I found this really useful for us in terms of a, an eye opening um, way to map this through weight bearing CT scans and something that hopefully will be exciting in the future for flat foot deformities. Thank you. That was brilliant. Thank you so much, Parisa. And it takes us nicely on to Abby's paper. So Abhinav, do you want to go through your paper, which is the combined weight-bearing CT and MRI assessment of flexible progressive collapsing foot deformity? Over to you, Abby. Uh, thanks a lot, Akib. So uh, this paper uh, was published uh, in Foot and Ankle Surgery in 2020 by the Cesanetto's uh, group. Uh, the aim of the paper was to investigate the role of combined imaging assessment in allowing a better understanding of the relationship regarding uh, which soft tissue structures are more frequently and severely affected when specific bone markers um, of marked progressive uh, PCFD and uh, peritella subluxation are present. So the background is that, uh, as we've already heard from Kartik and uh, Kartik, that um, acquired flat foot deformity, or uh, you know, the nomenclature should be changed to progressive collapsing foot deformity. It's a disorder characterized by multiplanar bony deformities alongside tenderness and ligamentous insufficiency. The exact sequence uh, of the osseous and soft tissue structures is yet to be fully understood. Uh, for a long time, it was felt that tibial posture, uh, tibialis posture insufficiency uh, was a sole driver of this condition. However, uh, we know from the other papers discussed this evening that uh, other soft tissue elements in the hind foot and the medial longitudinal arch play an important role. Currently, MRI is the gold standard for soft tissue evaluation and weight-bearing CTs allows for an optimized assessment of a dynamic, complex 3D deformity. So in terms of the study design, uh, this was a retrospective single-center radiographic cohort study with two fellowship-trained first ankle surgeons and two MSK radiologists as blind and independent assessors. Uh, one observer in each group repeated the measurements after 30 days uh, to, to reduce uh, memory bias. Uh, 54 adult patients treated between February 2016 and December 2017, um, with a diagnosis of uh, with symptomatic flexible PCFD, uh, with both a weight-bearing CT and MRI scan of the affected side. The MRI scan uh, scans were either 1.5 or 3 Tesla, and they were they had to be performed no more than three months after the weight-bearing CT. Um, before the patients were included into the study, two independent musculoskeletal radiologists had to assess the imaging quality. Exclusions uh, were inflammatory and rheumatological conditions uh, and prior realignment or fusion surgery of the affected hind foot or first ray. 
In terms of the outcome, so the weight-bearing uh, CT assessment, which was done by the surgeons, uh, the primary focus was the peritaylor subluxation, which was uh, uh, defined using um, the subluxation of the posterior facet of the subtalar joint uh, and, and described as the amount of percentage uncoverage, uh, the incidence of in, uh, sinus tarsi impingement and subfibular impingement. They also assessed indirect signs of impingement, such as focal sclerosis, osteophytes, and cystic formation. In the MRI assessments, which was done by the radiologist, uh, the degeneration of the medial soft tissue structures, uh, so seven structures defined by Delandertal, um, focusing around the deltoid, the spring uh, ligaments, um, they were graded in severity from zero to four. In terms of statistics, uh, so continuous variables were assessed with no, um, uh, using the Shapiro-Wilkes test and uh, ordinal and nominal data was reported using descriptive stats. A very interesting part of this was that uh, the influence of the MRI soft tissue degenerations on peritellar subluxation was assessed using multivariate logistic regression. So essentially, performance measurements and partition prediction models were used to link the specific soft tissue affected and their deterioration grading on the MRI as thresholds for assessing the diagnosis of the three markers of peritaylor subluxation. In terms of the results, it was found that the spring ligament degeneration correlated to subtalar joint subluxation. And in fact, the inferior component of the spring ligament was the best predictor of this. The degeneration of the posterior tibial tendon was significantly associated with sinus tarsi impingement, uh, in such that the worsening degeneration predicted a higher prevalence of impingement. And the talo calcaneal interosseous ligament involvement was the only one to significantly colorate, uh, colorate with the presence of subfibular impingement. So in terms of food for thought, while well, the study cohort demonstrates a high prevalence of established uh, markers of um, uh, uh, talo subluxation, uh, with um, impingement uh, seen in 73% and subtalar subluxation seen in 69% of the patients. The authors have uh, outlined the limitations of their study in that it's retrospective, non-controlled, uh, without being having the powerful to uh, identify causation. However, the most meaningful aspect is the potential of clinical applicability of this work uh, and to set the groundwork for future researchers um, in order to estimate the amount of uh, peritaylor subluxation when it comes to assessing images. So in summary, this is a retrospective study of 54 patients, which demonstrates uh, that weight-bearing CT markers of pronounced deformity uh, in subluxation were significantly correlated to MRI involvement um, of uh, um, uh, and other important restraints, such as a spring and talocalcaneal interosseous ligaments. It supports the rationale that radiological reporting should focus on subtalar and spring ligaments to allow surgeons um, to uh, expectantly manage different aspects of peritaylor subluxation and treat it in a proactive manner. Thank you. That was absolutely awesome. I think actually all of the presentations were um, uh, a very high level and, and, and uh, superbly presented. So um, well done to all of you. Just to reset the room, um, this is a Bone Club Journal Club event on Clubhouse. Um, in the audience will be um, orthopedic surgeons, trainees, allied health professionals, and even patients. And so although the, we've started the topics with some very, very high-level science, that, that we're going to uh, move into topics that hopefully will be of interest to everyone at a level that everyone can understand. So um, uh, we've got a world-class faculty um, 
truly some of the world's leading experts on the topic. And if you want to see anyone's biographies, you just click on their photo. And if you follow them, then you'll be able to listen to them and, and hear them where they, they speak in the future. Um, and if you want to ask a question, you just simply click the hand on the bottom right hand corner and um, uh, you'll be elevated to the stage. Um, when you're not speaking, it'd be great if you could mute your microphone. And if you do come to the stage, and please say who you are, where you're from, and then ask a question. Obviously, we're going to love to hear it. Um, so having heard all the papers now, um, perhaps we should come now to um, uh, Dr. Myerson um, and uh, ask us for your, your sort of uh, feeling of the, the, the feedback so far. Thank you, Andy. So, um, first of all, uh, thank you, Kratik and, and the others. You, you really gave a brilliant uh, overview uh, of the issue and the classification. Now, let me give you a little uh, background behind this. I think that we all recognize that uh, a classification is absolutely necessary for managing the flat foot. Um, having said that, uh, the, the classifications that uh, we have used in the past have a lot of shortcomings. Uh, the terminology is a problem. So, for example, uh, the term uh, dysfunction should never really be part of the adult flat foot. We don't really want the term acquired uh, in here as well, because you can have a, a long-standing pre-existing flat foot deformity. So uh, we came up with a terminology uh, which recognized that, that we, we want foot in there, but we don't necessarily want flat foot. And the only reason for that was that, unfortunately, here in the United States, many uh, claims for surgical correction of flat foot are denied by insurance companies because of uh, the concept of a pre-existing long-standing deformity. So uh, hence the, the term that we came up with, progressive um, collapsing, which and you can understand the use of the word collapsing uh, foot deformity. One of the issues that uh, we uh, have faced in retrospect now, you know, um, some of you may be aware of a, um, a pilot validation study that I sent out to many of you within the past few months. In an attempt to validate the classification, um, I took 20 cases of flat foot, some of my own, some of Cesar Neto, and some of uh, one of uh, my partners, Ken Hunt, here in Colorado. And we, we I put these together and sent them all out. And from the evaluation of everybody's responses, we realized that the, the classification as it is, um, is very good in certain respects, but has some shortcomings in other respects. So let's take a quick look at this. First of all, um, the feedback that I've received is this. The term progressive can be a little bit confusing because does that imply that if you have uh, an early uh, deformity, is this always going to progress from um, what we consider in the older classification? Let's say you have a flexible deformity. So in this 
in the new classification as stage one being flexible, is a stage one deformity always going to uh, move on to a stage two deformity? And quite clearly it does not because many patients will continue with a flexible deformity indefinitely. Um, another problem that uh, we did not uh, anticipate was the concept of ankle instability. So the class E, uh, because the, the, in reality, you will have a valgus ankle, and that valgus ankle is either going to be flexible or rigid. Now, you also recognize that if you have a valgus ankle, um, that can be associated with multiplanar instability because if you have severe valgus, you can erode the calcaneofibular ligament, and that then leads to not only valgus instability but also um, uh, laxity laterally, so you'll have multiplanar instability. But quite clearly, the, the term instability may not be ideal um, in, uh, in the classification. And then um, many people had a problem with the concept of fixed forefoot supination. Is this rigid or not? Um, we all understand that if you have a valgus hind foot and you reduce the hind foot into neutral, if you have a fixed forefoot supination of 20 degrees that is rigid and it does it's not reducible well we understand that but many people had problems uh, with the uh, interpretation uh, of the case as we moved forward one thing examination so in the cases that we presented was critically important because if I don't put in the case history that this is a rigid abduction deformity, you can have a rigid valgus and assume that it associates with the rigid valgus, everything else is going to be rigid, but that does not necessarily hold true because you can have a rigid subtalar joint, but you could have a flexible, in other words, a stage one class B deformity so that the abduction deformity is reducible. So your tail and navicular joint is not rigid. It's only in the subtalar joint. And people had a, a hard time understanding this. Another uh, term that's one of the classes that we had a little trouble with is the concept of peritalar uh, subluxation or peritalar instability. Now, uh, fortunately, because of the use of weight-bearing CT, it becomes very, very easy to understand the concept of peritalar instability or peritalar subluxation. And in particular, the work that has been done, the pioneer work by Cesar Neto, uh, really does help us understand so well uh, the deformity. But people have a hard time understanding, well, what is peritalar subluxation? And this, in, in the classification now, in retrospect, we realize that more information may need to be provided. And from here, you know, I'll, I'll open it up for further discussion. But just by saying that our consensus group, uh, the, the, the group that met to establish the consensus on the classification, we are scheduled to meet again 
to try to redefine this and um, make this a little bit more versatile and clinically useful. So thank you very much for uh, your, um, your summary, Kartik, and let's perhaps uh, open this for more discussion. Thank you, Mark. That's uh, uh, um, amazing insights and, and uh, clearly work to, to come. Let's let's move over to um, Caesar now to, to tell us um, uh, your thoughts on both the papers and, and on the subject. Sure. Well, Dr. Marson uh, gave a great uh, summary there and great inputs. One single thing I would like to uh, emphasize of the, uh, the classification system. Uh, I think the main thing that we wanted to achieve was um, there are so many concepts there are kind of new concepts or more detailed concepts in the literature that were not uh, and I think parietal subluxation even though it's an old concept by Dr. Sanjorzen's group um, back to 1999 and, and even before that uh, but we wanted to do the classification in a way that people could look into their patients we wanted them to recognize patterns of deformity and they would be able to tell us with the classification what they see in the x-ray, in the clinical exam, and if, if they have a wave CT, what they see in the wave CT. So we knew that the classification, uh, we know classifications cannot be, they're never perfect, but uh, we wanted to keep it open in a way that people could describe what they see. And so I think that is probably the most important uh, uh, advantage of this classification. Uh, it's very, uh, open for people to describe what, uh, and uh, uh, probably won't be super reliable uh, in the literature for intra-inter observer reliability, even if you try to focus like Dr. Myers mentioned, but I think it's very uh, good for uh, allow people to describe what they see. Well, that being said, I mean, in relation to the other two papers, um, would like to congratulate the presenters, um, like Andy and Dr. Myerson mentioned, I think great presentations top quality so uh, congratulations uh, so th those are probably two of my favorite uh, publications um, starting with the covert maps and the distance maps I think it's uh, it's the future and it's a it's a more accurate uh, way of uh, uh, gouging what we see uh, I really love the concept of Taylor subluxation I think it's very important uh, uh, parameter that we have to look into any progressive collapsing foot deformity or flat foot if you prefer that way. And uh, uh, what the distance of wave variant and distance mapping is allowing us to do is, in other words, to be much more precise. So before uh, Caesar, we're, le we're losing your connection, I think. Um, uh, maybe an internet uh, issue there. We'll come back to you, Caesar, when the... Um, Hello, can you hear me? That's better. Yeah, that's better. Okay, I'm sorry, my, 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 my signal is probably not perfect. Um, but now with this, uh, with this uh, technology and uh, with the distance mapping, we are able to look into really three-dimensional data with the whole extension of the Ferret-Taylor uh, area. And we can tell exactly, measuring uh, thousands of points, uh, we can tell the dis distance between non-articular and articular surfaces. And uh, I think uh, the goal of this paper was to really bring distance mapping into an easy visual way for you to look into the maps and you can tell, even if I don't give you what the colors they mean, you could 
you could understand what's going on. The callers need to help people to understand so this can be at some point clinically applicable. Um, and so I really love the, the work that we did with the callers, uh, not just for the distance maps where blue means okay, red means uh, red and yellow means bad. Um, and uh, the coverage maps are even more important in my opinion because they show the subluxation. So uh, if you see purple or purple or pink, uh, depending on, uh, on what um, kind of uh, software you're using, then you know that that part is uh, uncovered compared to a control or more dislocation or more subluxation. If you have red, if you're inside a joint, that means arthritis probably. And if you're outside of the joint, that means impingement. So we focus on sinus tarsus and subcubular impingement. Uh, and if you have a gray, it means that there's a shadow, there's a bone on the top of it, but it's far away. Um, so I think uh, it, it was a, a very cool way and very precise way. We have to emphasize the precision of showing uh, the peritoneal subluxation characteristics uh, and highlighting again uh, that the meter facet might be the best indicator, uh, but we have to keep in mind that the whole uh, peritoneal area or the whole calcaneus is subluxing underneath the talus. We're just trying to find the best way, the best predictor, or the best uh, single measurement that could tell you an overall assessment of the deformity. Uh, but everything is happening at the same time. Uh, the other paper, uh, it's probably uh, my favorite, uh, even though we had some problems um, with uh, uh, with the submission and uh, interpretation of these by reviewers and things like that. It's a very simple paper, but I think it's uh, uh, very important uh, when you compare bone alignment and soft tissue degeneration. Uh, ideally, we would want to have everything done in a, in the same uh, test, but we we know that MRI is gold standard for soft tissue, and and hopefully. Wafer NCT will be the, the, the uh, gold standard for uh, alignment, especially in um, dynamic deformity, such as progressive collapsing foot deformity. But this paper, in my opinion, is very important uh, because it brings into light when you see a deformity, when you see some uh, patterns of deformity, and uh, we use the sinus stars impingement, subtalar impingement, and subtalar joint subluxations as signs of peritalar subluxation. And they're very important markers for me in the understanding of this deformity. Uh, and we went to the MRI to see uh, what would be the correspondence of the generation of soft tissues. Uh, so when you look to alignment, you could predict or at least uh, uh, have an idea of what soft tissue structures would be uh, degenerated in that specific deformity. Um, and it, even though we cannot uh, um, be 100% sure because it's not a longitudinal study, but uh, I, I do think that unveiling the sequence of events here, what happens first, and I, I can give you my opinion, but I can't prove that, but I, I do think that sinostars impingement happens earlier and, uh, uh, and it's a very bad mark that the deformity might progress and we don't, right now we don't give that attention to sinostars impingement, followed by progressive subtalar joint subluxation in all the facets, but maybe the middle facet would be the most important one. And then subtubular impingement is a, sign, a sign for me that you probably missed the boat, that uh, now most of your soft tissue structures are degenerated, especially the interosseous uh, uh, tail ligament. And in that scenario, then it's not a rotational deformity anymore. Now there's also translation because there's no real connection between talus and calcaneus. Uh, and you could do the opposite as well. Like looking to an MRI, you could potentially infer or estimate 
what would be the alignment if you don't have a weight bearing CT, you would predict what you could see uh, in the bone model alignment. So I think this is a very good data for us to use initially and potentially come up with a prospective longitudinal data that of course would be much more accurate than what we presented here. Thank you so much, uh, that's amazing. Um, um, and I, I think I'm just gonna now suggest that we, we take a step back um, so to the other panel members when you're answering your thoughts and your commentary just to, to, to position this more as how you interact with a patient that comes in with symptomatic flat feet um, whether that be a child or an adult uh, and how, how both this information and your current thinking um, leads to the way you treat the patients so, so why, why don't we move over to um, uh, in order of the panel. So, so um, uh, uh, Alistair, um, do you want to tell us, or doctor, should I say? Um, uh. <laughs> yeah, so, sorry about my, my not very smart interpretation of uh, Clubhouse and getting it right. Um, these are awesome papers, and you know, for, your, for your trainees there, uh, residents, registrars, um, when you, when you do a journal club, you want to try and understand, you know, how's this paper going to impact? And these are three very impactful papers because have practical significance on what we can do right now. But it also, each one of them adds an awful lot to an area of foot and ankle and orthopedics. We um, don't really understand that well. And these are the patients that are the most disabled by the time they come to surgery. Um, they have little understanding of their disease. Their treating physicians have little understanding of the disease. And when they come around to have an operation, they are very disabled. And what operation you do is still unclear. And everyone has their favorites because things kind of work for them. But we're still unclear and these this research and this classification will help us out dramatically in this when it comes to me treating patients um obviously mark myerson's paper on on the understanding of the flat foot deformity and classifying them is really important and my particular bugbear is that there's been way too little emphasis on the forefoot and way too much emphasis on the hind foot in in flat foot deformity, understanding it and correcting it. And I think that that's why we see, uh, for example, people receiving triple arthrodesis and then having residual forefoot varus that causes failure of the deltoid ligament and the recurrence of deformity through the ankle joint, which is a, a very um, uh, drastic end to your reconstruction. Um, so I think that the focus on the forefoot um, is very helpful. Caesar's papers are excellent. Um, when you look at the methodology, they're fantastic. And one of the reasons I think Caesar has so much trouble with his um, reviewers is that he's pushing the envelope of thought. And if you just do a Me Too paper, you know, like uh, another series of outcome of ankle joint replacements. Um, your reviewers just tend to, they understand it, they rubber stamp it, and you get your paper published. When you push the envelope of thought like Caesar is doing, which I think is absolutely awesome, and I encourage him to continue on this because this is absolutely awesome and groundbreaking research. 
the reviewers always pick it apart because they don't understand what you're presenting. And so it, it is always challenging to get these papers published. Um, I, I like uh, Caesar's uh, CT, Stanley's CT and MR paper uh, because there is soft tissue and bony ma uh, issues in the flat foot and the combination is a really nice explanation. I think the challenge is in interpreting the natural history. The reality is that we only know the natural history if we have a series of patients we can follow for a long time. And it is always a challenge in orthopedic papers because natural history takes a long time, so we've got to follow the patient. Um, and that becomes very expensive. And as a result, getting natural history studies in orthopedics is, is very difficult to do. Um, so I like um, the papers for that reason. And more, it's more for Caesar, it's like, where, where are we going to go next? You know, you've got this beluffal paper showing the, the peritalar subluxation um, of the, the subtalar joint, but there's, you know, there's already two other joints around about the, um, the talus. So we've got the tail and the vicular joint and understanding its uncoverage. And Mark has just talked about the peritalar subluxation. It's important. So it'd be great to see description of that and then description of what's going on in the forefoot, because I think there's so much of the uh, uh, flat foot uh, issues lie in the forefoot. But I think these three papers take a dramatic step forward in our thought process and understanding of flat foot conformity. And I can, I can only applaud everybody for doing such a great job. So anyway, thank you guys. Um, and it's a pleasure being part of this panel. Thank you, Alistair. That's um, um, uh, very, very uh, kind of you and um, uh, absolute insight into, into the, 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 for, the forefoot is, is um, uh, uh, clearly a very important topic, which um, uh, maybe we'll touch on a, a little bit later. C can I come to uh, Christian? Because Christian has very clear, crystal clear thinking, and 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 and, and I suppose we're seeing the tip of the <laughs> the tip of the iceberg here, Christian. Yeah, the, the, the thousands of patients um, have flat feet, but we only see a very very small proportion. So, how, how do you think about this subject and 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 take it on? Well, first of all, I, I want to say that I've been following the sequence of publications that my friend Caesar has been offering to us over the years. And uh, I know the way he's heading clearly into moving. And he mentions that at the end of every paper, uh, the flaws and the strength of every paper and where he's heading at the end of each of the papers. He's trying to find uh, solutions for our clinical problems at the end and with this valuable information we are clearly moving into that but I, I unfortunately I still feel that we're far away from that and that connects my thought and my thinking to what Mark, my friend Mark just mentioned uh, very it was he gave a, a very humble opinion because after all this work with such a big panel of experts he's saying that uh, after coming coming uh, uh, coming up with this uh, new name, progressive collapsing flat foot deformity, even considering insurance issues uh, before naming this pathology, but now he's uh, humbling saying that he he needs and they need to modify and make it better. And now that Alistair was just mentioning uh, all the doubts that we still have 
because I completely agree with the way everything is heading right now. I was so confusing when I first uh, read the, the classification and the first uh, uh, posterior tibial tendon dysfunction that my mentor gave to me and I read it and I, 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 I immediately thought this doesn't make sense to me because there's no way the PT tendon is the origin of everything. So now I, I, have, I just have a bunch of questions. I would really like to know which middle structure is is the first one to failure to fail i mean uh i would like to know why when you treat forefoot instability like when you perform a lapidus some of the values of the hind foot corrects and why it happens occasionally and not always uh i have uh, many other questions uh, what do we do with the, the medial collapsing high foot in valgus, but the the, high, the 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 arch is still cables because we have all seen this valgus progressive collapsing valgus, but the foot is still in cables. What do we do with people who have this relative relative uh, progressive collapsing foot deformity? But people who started with a cable virus deformity and now they have less cable virus than they have before. They actually do not have a flat foot. Uh, how do we treat, if, if, we, if we say as the first word that this is progressive, uh, so maybe we should treat these people much earlier, even before they have symptoms? Should we start doing uh, surgery in asymptomatic progressive collapsing flat foot deformity when we already know that this is progressive before they have significant symptoms, before trying inserts and all the kind of things that we, we typically try, including physical therapy and stuff like that. So uh, to be honest, Andy, I do not want to say anything else because I'm the less experienced one in the panel here. So I just wanted to uh, mention uh, that I have the impression that we're moving into the right direction and we need to collect all the questions in order uh, for everyone who is coming up with the papers to hopefully come up with the answers at the same time. And the answers, not just for the classification, for the type of treatment that we're going to finally perform. I love that, and 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 so so we heard from from Alistair that the forefoot is very important, and you rightly pointed out that maybe we're heading towards a, a, a paradigm where we are we should be treating patients earlier, and that's I think going to get an interesting um, <laughs> and controversial area for discussion. Um, let's move over to um, uh, Mr. Stephen Bendel. Um, uh, Stephen. Do, you know, you, you've you've been thinking about this topic, training um, trainees for many many years. What, what, what's your thoughts on on both the, the, what we should be teaching the trainees of the future, but also um, uh, what we should be saying to patients? Should we be treating them earlier? Well, good questions. I mean, you you've got a better re recollection of late bar conversations than I ever had. Um, I mean, we've talked about this many times in the past. I think in the right here, right now. Um, the Johnson Strong paradigm in terms of the exam uh, is probably where trainees were expected to to structure their answers around it. I mean, the next exam's in two weeks' time, as I recall. Um, 
but uh, Steve, is that is that because the examiners are non? Um, well, they're general, generalists. Well, I've heard of any of the latest. You can double stuff. check with Rick, who's also an examiner. But the the the, the point about the exam, what you need to remember is that the standard is basically what's called a day one consultant in the generality of orthopedics. And that's a very much lower standard, if you like, than what we're talking at the moment. So it's a much less advanced level. So in terms of applicability of the, this classification, I mean, it's very much about context. So if we're talking about generalists, uh, whether we like it or not, the Johnson-Strom classification is going to, in my view, hang around, as it were, for a number of years before this the crossroads we're at, at the moment sort of begins to move forwards and this new paradigm begins to take off. So I guess my message to the to the guys worrying about the exam in the, in the next few weeks is, you know, don't panic. Um, as long as you can sort of um, basically identify what you're putting in front of you and you can justify it, um, then you, you'll be fine. Uh, and uh, this debate, I think, is is fascinating. I mean, I, I mean, Mark's classification is... It's a bit like a sort of breath of fresh air. It's, I've, I've struggled for 20 years with the Johnson Strong classification because it doesn't reflect my clinical practice, what I see, what I operate on. And again, sort of listening to uh, Caesar's papers, um, I mean, I, I, I was just looking looking back at the sort of the post of my radiology reports. I, I looked at the last sort of 10 cases that I did to post dysfunction, and you know, one or two mentioned the spring ligament, and none of the other structures that uh, mentioned in, the, in that third paper come up so we've got some education to do not only of ourselves but also of our our colleagues to in particular radiology uh, that's fascinating set of papers thank you Stephen. um let's let's move over to to uh, rick now to get your uh, insights and what steve said and, and what's been said so far yes no, it's been clear for a long time that adult acquired flat foot isn't the whole story it's not just hip post and we've known about the, these factors and uh, british trainees would be expected to point out things like fixed forefoot varus and looking for spring ligaments we've always known those patients with the most damaged spring ligaments on mri scans are the ones that invariably do badly but i really like the way mark's pulling all this together and as a, a clear structure which would be easy for people to learn and to base their clinical examination um I would caution a little bit. I'm pleased to go back to look at it again because the Sanders classification with so many subgroups and A's, B's and C's starts becoming quite impractical and, and people fail to use it in a day-to-day -day clinical setting. But uh, I think it's great to pull these things together. Um, but the, and it's based on great science. And any good scientific paper, such as the distance mapping paper of Caesars, um, it actually described a condition and of course, it asked more questions and, and, and created more questions than it answered. I, I'd love to repeat the experiment again with patients of different weight, patients with ligamentous laxity, because that's the adolescents perhaps, and see how they perform, and to watch the same patients over a period of time, because then you could see, as the, their sinus tarsus impingement, you could see that deteriorating, and that would be fascinating, because only when we know the chronicity of this condition with these new technologies can we start to go into the next stage which people have alluded to about using these as tests to predict treatments for either early symptomatic or non-symptomatic patients. But I think these are very, very elegant and I've enjoyed reading them. Thanks. Thank you, Rick. Um, actually, the, the, that's a nice segue into uh, Andy Leroy, because we were just discussing the spring ligament the other day. So, um, uh, Andy, what's your, what's your thoughts on, on this subject? Hi, sorry about that. I was pressing the wrong button. Um, 
the first of all, I'd just like to uh, uh, congratulate the presenters again. And I thought Kartik's comment was incredibly insightful for the for the registrars out there. Is that for for the juniors, Mark, um, the panel's classification system is a wonderful basis for making sure that you don't miss something in an examination. So using it a bit like a surgical sieve. Uh, will really help you in the exam and not missing anything for a generalised foot and ankle uh, uh, examination. I think uh, Mark and the panel have done a wonderful job in trying to um, come up with a classification system. As we all know, the Johnson-Strom doesn't really, really fit. And the problem is, is that there are so many variables in this. And I think the the endpoints of this research will be so that we can categorize patients properly so that we can group people together and compare apples with apples and pears with pears because at the moment it's just a whole conglomerate of foot and ankle uh, uh, of flat foot deformities that are being lumped together and quite often having the similar operation when there's very different pathology on and i know even certainly from my clinical practice certainly when i first started is you do your standards of tip post reconstruction and then wonder why the foot became flat again and that's because you've got deformity in other areas which hasn't been addressed by that standardized operation so i think it's going to open up the paucity of our knowledge and our treatments at the moment and will help us to analyze it better uh, in the future um Cesar's papers are incredible. To take the uh, um, the weight-bearing CT paper, which is incredibly complex in its measurements, and to simplify it with those diagrams, the colour mapping, to show exactly why these patients have pain. Because many of us have thought for many years, as we were taught, that the flat foot has subfibular impingement, when you can quite plainly see that it doesn't. And it's sinus tarsi impingement they have, which we can't get on our, our 2D pictures. And I think that the third paper really brings into something which a few of you have mentioned, that is this always going to be progressive? Well, I mean, from Cesar's uh, um, second paper, is that if you're seeing that there's damage to the inferior uh, band of the spring ligaments, then these patients seem to get worse deformities and something which is more likely to be sick symptomatic so i think you're starting to head towards some evidence which may suggest that they should be operated on earlier to help prevent going to a much bigger operation because as we know the mean uh, patient reported outcome scores from uh, fusion surgery especially if you go to a triple are extremely poor and that is salvage surgery and we need to prevent people from getting to that so uh, I think it's a fantastic collection uh, 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 of papers that will push us on to better quality research and comparing outcomes from similar types of patients. That's awesome. Thank you, Andy. Um, just to reset the room, this is a, a Bone Club uh, Journal Club um, event on Clubhouse. Um, Bone Club's really an open forum to share knowledge across organisation and geographical boundaries and really to generate the next uh, generation, if you like, of uh, musculoskeletal experts. And so it's apt that we're using um, Clubhouse and Next Generation social media tool to do so. And this tool allows anyone anywhere in the world to join in. In the audience, we have a whole um, plethora of individuals with different backgrounds. If anyone has any questions for this panel, uh, please don't hesitate to raise your hand and we'll bring you up to the stage uh, to ask. But I'd like to ask um, 
Dr. Myerson, um, again, we've been talking about the, um, the, the people that we see as orthopaedic surgeons, but what about the rest of the population? Should, should, what are the roles of insoles and exercise in, in the management of fat feet? Andy, having practiced foot and ankle surgery for almost 40 years, I cannot tell you the answer to that. I have no idea um, because I, I'm really not sure what the role is of orthotic arch support or bracing uh, to change the development and progression of deformity. I think that um, you may be able to provide some symptom relief using uh, orthotic support but I don't think that it's going to change the natural history. And that is something that we really need to uh, look at and understand uh, more. Um, I, I wonder why it is that we all, you know, we, we've been talking here today and I've listened to all of you talk and, you know, think about what it is that tips it for certain people and where they become symptomatic enough that they want surgery. There was a time, uh, I would say about 20 years ago, maybe more, when I didn't un quite understand the natural history. And it, it is a natural uh, inclination when you have a patient with a severe flexible deformity. So regardless of what class you're dealing with, you're dealing with a stage one deformity. To say to the patient, well, if you leave this, this is going to go on to become a progressively more difficult problem to manage. But we don't have the answers. We really don't know that that is going to be the case. And what Cesar has been able to do, and perhaps Cesar, you can answer this, is what, what are the defining features that trigger symptoms? We know that if you have uh, sufficient peritalar subluxation to cause sinus tarsi impingement, that is painful. And that often brings people uh, for treatment and surgery. But we 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 don't understand yet uh, the natural process of uh, of deformity and how this progresses. I think that's hugely um, humbling that that that, um, that uh, after forty years of practice, you have patients coming from all around the world to visit you, and, and um, I think you've reflected probably what we all think, which is that we still don't understand. Um, the role of, of, of orthotics. Um, one thing I suppose that, that um, there was a great paper done in Eastern Europe maybe 20 years ago which looked at um, preschool children and they um, took a whole, I mean, hundreds of uh, children that had flat feet because they were all sort of the age of four, um, three or four years old. And then they followed them up, putting half the kids into a group of exercises and half the group into a, a, a um, uh, sorry, half the kids into a group of orthotics. And what they found was that the incidence of flat feet in those with orthotics 
by the age of seven or I think the eight or nine was reflective of that in the adult population around 12, 15%. Whereas those that had done the exercises, the numbers had reduced significantly. I've never seen a study anything like that. All of the studies that I've seen in the last 10 years have all been on 20 patients, 15 or 30 patients, 15 in each group. It's with very poor quality. Um, what's the panel's thoughts on, on exercises um, at an early stage, even, even in, uh, as kids? Andy, if you allow me, is this is Christian. Please, please, Christian. I've been moving into performing more and more arthrosis in the last, uh, let's say, 15 years, beginning with the classical calyx, going all the way from calcaneus top, and now performing this arthrosis with the newest implants that go into the tarsal canal. And uh, it's curious to me that in some cases you need to remove the implant and uh, the correction persists. It doesn't come back. And I used to think that when I was going to perform the, the arthrosis, it was all always indicated only in young adolescents and we used to think that it will never work when someone was overweight even if that little boy was 13 years old 12 or 11 if he or she was more than whatever 30 kilograms uh, the the correction was not going to work because in my mind it was the idea that we were going to change something in the ligaments in the bone structure or something but that's not true we're not changing anything. And even if we have to remove the implant as, as early as three months, most of the cases remain corrected, even in adults, in adult patients. And on the other side, I, I have seen something that is also written in some paper. Uh, I, don't, I cannot recall which one exactly, but it says that when you correct one foot, the other one may correct itself uh, without any further treatment, without surgery. So uh, that made me think that we are just forcing the muscle and the proprioception in a different way. And that's why this arthrosis works. I, I still don't understand why. Uh, so it makes sense what you're saying, mentioning this paper, and it has been shown somewhere, and you see physical therapists, they insist on uh, uh, exercises and stuff like that, but it's so hard to see results on clinical practice, as Mark Myerson was saying, that we just don't trust it. But I can tell you this humble experience that I have uh, with the arthrosis that I now perform, uh, I can say on a regular basis in some selected cases in adults, and in kids that do not do well with conservative treatment. And I, that's why I mentioned that before. I'm moving more and more into perform this, uh, like to prevent further deformity. And you know, I have, I have been taking, when I, when I was in doubt a few years ago, and I, I thought, okay, this kid, is not tolerating inserts and he's complaining that he's not able to practice soccer 
or he's not he's not able to run with his friends but otherwise he's healthy and he's walking around without any trouble how am i going to uh justify that i'm going to perform a lateral column lengthening or the medial calcaneali medializing calcaneal it was always it, it always looked like, like too much surgery to me. But now that we have the arthrosis available, and it, with local anesthesia, and, uh, and it takes a few minutes to put the implant in, and uh, I, I started to take uh, specs and I saw a lot of what could be what now we're uh, seeing in these uh, studies we just uh, we just read today uh, before you see the collapse in the joint before you see the impingement in the specificity you see normal joints no subluxation no decrease in the distance in the bone so there's no article damage uh, cartilage damage but what you see is high signal in the subchondral bone so that was my way of making myself uh, let's say happy that I was performing the surgery because uh, I I still think that those people, those guys who say this deformity is progressive, I can see it, doctor. And that's the feeling from the patient, that's the feeling from the family, and they are not crippled, but they are doing poorly. And uh, I'm not as experienced as Mark, of course, but I'm 53 years old and I, I have been a foot and ankle surgeon for 25 years already. And I have seen people going worse, getting worse and getting worse over the years. And then you get late to perform the treatment. And then you have to perform the futures and other things. So I, I just wanted to share these uh, thoughts, humble thoughts with you. So to give you something to think about. Thank, Thank you, Christian. Thank you, Christian. So, so for, for those in the audience that aren't aware what an arthrosis implant is, is when you look at the subtalar joint, the talus rotates on top of the calcaneum, the heel bone below it. And when there's excessive rotation, then the front of the, the front of the talus hits against the calcaneum in, the, in something called the sinus carsi, just in the outside of the foot. And that's called excessive eversion, and that's what Cesar's paper refers to as um, uh, uh, impingement, if you like, of the um, uh, 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 in the sinus tarsi. Now, um, what the arthrosis does is it controls that excessive eversion, and so in children, I agree with Christian. In children, um, if if you give them that clue, you give them the additional understanding of what the normal tailor should move. I do think that actually you don't have to do all of the other adjunct procedures. Um, but that doesn't apply to adults. So I, I think that the, 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 the natural history thing is, is actually the children becoming adults because um, in children you can get away with minimal surgery and then physical therapy and they can have normal existence. Whereas actually when you're too late, when someone hits teenage years or adulthood, the, the arthrosis alone does not work. Um, I think, I think that's, that's, that's certainly my view. I don't know what the rest of the panel think about that. Andy, can I, can I provide some inputs? Please. Well, I, I mean, that's why uh, Flatfoot is so so cool. I mean, we could stay here for, for four hours for sure talking about it. 
uh, unfortunately, as all the panel members mentioned, I mean, we have more questions than answers, unfortunately, but that's also the, the, the cool part, that we have so many questions to answer that there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, with all that was said, I mean, there's one thing that uh, I would like to be kind of the devil's advocate here. Um, so I, I, I think I think that the, the, the Johnson-Strong classification uh, causes uh, us a little bit of problems, not just with patients, but also with uh, with training people. Um, so I, I, I would go a little bit against what was previously said here. I mean, we know that the posterior tibial tendon dysfunction is just the tip of the iceberg. It's one out of uh, thousands of uh, structures that are involved in this mood effectorial disorder that potentially having a prior flat foot during infancy or childhood is one of the factors. Um, but teaching the general practitioners and the medical students and uh, the healthcare providers uh, that the posterior tibial tendon dysfunction classification is easier to be used, I, I think we kind of under highlight or under appreciate the problem. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons I think we still see some uh, severe deformities because, I mean, how, I mean, who here and you guys have more experience than I with patients, but it's very common. I mean, patients come to see you and if you tell them, well, your problem is that you have a flat foot and then they laugh and they will say, well, I have a flat foot since I was 10 years old that I can remember. Uh, so what are, tell me something new. Uh, so the problem is not having a flat foot is to have a flat foot that is progressing. And then, then we run into the problem of how do we find out the ones that are going to progress? And I think that's the $1 million question uh, or more, much more than that. Uh, and I think we should focus on that. There's so many uh, examples in medicine uh, where we try to find threshold values. And I, I'm not trying to simplify this into a single measurement or into a single value, but we have so good clinical assessment imaging assessment that we could potentially come up with an algorithm for saying well look this is this is what you have you have according to the literature and to your clinical findings you have 75 percent chances of, of this progressing or something like that it's like it's like diabetes you have an 8ba1c higher than 6.5 you're probably going to get treatment if you don't then you don't get treatment same for blood pressure high blood pressure so uh, that's used. I mean, thresholds are used in the literature for so much stuff and so so good data out there for clinical pathologies um, that I, I think um, for this specific uh, three-dimensional complex problem, I think we have to, you know, take take deep breaths and 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 reassess if what we have been teaching uh, is correct and uh, try to come up with um, new data and new. Uh, in light of the new data available, at least uh, highlight this to uh, general health care providers that it might be a little bit more complicated than we thought. I mean, having a flat foot in young age that hurts might not be that uh, benign. And like, I think it was, uh, I remember who mentioned about, uh, uh, I, I think it was Andy, um, that uh, if we could, if we could understand what are those patients that potentially would benefit from surgical treatment, realignment surgical treatment earlier, so they don't get uh, hind foot arthritis and they need a triple or subtalar joint fusion, I'm sure those patients would do better uh, in, in um, later uh, time with follow-up. So just, sorry, but just, just being a little bit of a devil's advocate here. 
Thank you, uh, Caesar. We're going to be bringing the room shortly to a close, so let's just ask um, the trainees for a couple of questions. Um, coming to the stage now is um, uh, is it Dr. Anna Paula Simos? If I said that correctly. Yes, it's correctly. Nice, nice to see you again, Andy Cesar from Brazil. Mark, I'm Anna Paula from uh, Brazilian Society of uh, Food. Uh, you've muted yourself, uh, Anna. Sorry, I didn't understand what you said because I, I was in. Uh, I didn't listen what your question. Uh, Anna, do you have a question for the for the for the panel? It's lovely to see you, but do you have a question for the panel? Sorry about that, because my um, internet was failed. Uh, I, I would like to ask you, in Netflix, in children uh, with uh, have flat foot, it has a lot of pay, uh, force. And do you have some kind of uh, different approach or are the same uh, in, in the normal children and that do sports with a lot of Does anyone from the faculty want to take on the difference between sports? Uh, athletes and sedentary people. Andy, nominate you to come on with that. Dr. Malloy. Um, I, 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 I don't have a, a pediatric practice, so it's really only in the 16-year-olds and above that are, are seen. I think as uh, Cesar uh, alluded to it's it's a it's a really difficult um it's a really difficult area in people when they have symptomatic um flat feet but they haven't gone on to progress yet but they're not particularly severe i think as christian said if you get spec ct as it does show it will show um some subchondral uh, uh high uptake um getting anyone to wear orthotics in athletics can be difficult and it's i think for any of you when you start your practice is trying to find people who can make appropriate things which are uh, uh, uh low profile cab cam i think is really is really important because if they just get some standard orthotics made that they're never going to fit in the, the shoes that they want to wear for it i think the concept of exercise i think is really really important i think for in people with flat feet is that if we carried out isometric testing is that you're going to find that tip post is not working that probably the perineals are, uh, are overly uh, um, strong compared to the tip post when things start to collapse and it's not necessarily this this tendinopathy so i think the if they are too old as andy alluded to for an arthrosis and it is big surgery that you're potentially doing on them is i would have exhausted all conservative measures before you get them because if they're talking that it's sort of 0.25 centimeters uh, seconds on 100 meters is crucially important to them is that's very difficult to to promise that you're definitely going to get them and, and any surgery can fail so i would go down the, the full line of conservative treatment, but that's not treating people with supervised neglect year after year. Let, let's, th thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to now quickly move over to Fiona because we're um, running out of time. But Fiona's got a very interesting background being a, um, 
maybe you can introduce yourself, Fiona, and then explain um, what your question is to the panel, please. Hi, um, so I'm Fiona from London. Um, I'm actually just, I'm somebody who's been treated for uh, what I would call flat feet. Um, just a brief history, so I was sort of, it was first became known to me around the age of 10. Um, and following that, had only started to receive, I suppose, uh, the shoe inserts later on um, down the line, maybe late 20s. Um, and I, I do have a couple of questions. Um, my sister, who's listening via YouTube, um, she has had the triple fusion in both feet um, and is now getting arthritis in her mid midfoot. Um, and I think it, somebody did mention around whether or not the triple fusion was the best way to go. Um, so I, I suppose I'd like that answered. Um, and then just uh, for myself personally, I'd like to know if there's any correlation between the flat foot and plantar fasciitis. Um, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's what I have. Um, and then again, if this room will be holding more talks for the lay listener. Thank you very much. So um, shall we open that up to the panel then? Um, so uh, Fiona, thank you for your question. Just to make a note that on the Bone Club, um, we welcome everyone, including patients, to ask questions. However, we can't give specific medical advice um, because that's kind of out of our remit. But in general, if we are talking about patients who are having those sort of an issues, what are your thoughts about midfoot problems? Let's open that up to the um, to the panel then. Anyone want to take that on? I think um, we've we've already um, alluded to that this is a very very difficult conundrum. We we are yet unable to predict which patients progress, and clearly, if you're in your sister's case and maybe in your own case, um, you're a case study that that highlights the importance potentially of addressing this very early on and with early intervention but we're not as a group yet there and the important thing is that you work closely with um, your your treating doctor and and any physical therapist and podiatrist that are within their team that can help look at you as a whole because it's not just your feet that matter here it's it's a whole whole issue of your, your skeletal chain going 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 right right the way up and and um uh, uh, it's really important that you, you work with, with your uh, treating clinician to make sure that you have a, a program looking at you as a whole rather than just your, just your flat feet. Um, um, Akib, is there some more questions from the, the, the um, audience? Yeah, so uh, what we're going to do, just to reset the room, so this is the Bone Club. We've been talking for about 90 minutes now, and I think, Cesar, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. We could talk about this for four or five hours. Um, so just to respect everybody's time, uh, what we'll do is we will draw the room to a close very shortly. We may have a couple more questions, um, and I'll ask the uh, people who we've just brought up to stage, so there's Matthew and there's Hash, um, those will be the last two questions within the room, to, to ask their questions or make their comment, and um, if we can perhaps uh, try to limit it to about 10-15 seconds, and then we'll, we'll draw the room to a close if that's okay. So over to Matthew next. Hi, uh, good evening everyone. I'm Matthew, I'm a consultant for an ankle surgeon from London. I know quite a lot of people on the panel, so uh, hello to everyone. Well done, Andy, for organising. Um, I think it's really interesting hearing 
all these sort of the, the, the new thinking about the, about the flat foot. But I wanted to just ask a clinical question to the, the panel, really. And some of the patients that I really struggle to deal with are those with a flexible hind foot. And when you reduce the hind foot, I think Alistair was talking about it, you've got a very severe forefoot supination. So say 30, 40, 50 degrees forefoot supination, how you deal with those patients where even a cosmosiotomy or a plantar flexion lapidus is quite difficult to balance the forefoot. So I wanted to ask this very esteemed faculty, what you would do with those patients when you reduce the hind foot and the forefoot is very severely supinated? So if I may ask, uh, answer that, I, I want to give you a historic perspective because in the 1980s and probably also in even in the 90s, if you had a very severe forefoot supination, let us say 30 degrees or more, um, <clears throat> I found that the most predictable procedure for me at the time was a triple arthrodesis. <clears throat> now, nowadays we would say, no, that's really uh, too much treatment. It's not necessary. All you need to do is reduce your hind foot into neutral and do a medial column procedure. The question I think that you're asking is what type of medial column procedure is necessary? Um, is it uh, a cotton? Is it a lapidus with a cotton? And Cesar, uh, perhaps you can answer that because you have uh, described the procedure, what you call a lapidus cotton. Um, because one of the things that I've seen is that you can correct fairly significant deformity. And of course, we're talking about forefoot supination now or fixed forefoot varus um, with a cotton osteotomy because it reduces some of the instability that you will see both at the navicular cuneiform and the first tarsal metatarsal joint. So the, <clears throat> the question is going to be what is enough and what and when do you need to bail and do something a lot more uh, aggressively? Thank you. Well, just a quick input because I know we're, we're about to be done, but uh, I mean, this is a very difficult question to be answered as well. There are so many different procedures that you could do to bring your first column or immediate column down, but it doesn't matter what we do. Uh, I, I, I totally agree with Alistair. Uh, I think, and that I've learned, I always make sure that I uh, acknowledge that I've learned that with Dr. Delan as one of my mentors and for me, uh, like, uh, it's a the huge expert on that, as we all know, but you have to bring your first rate down. It's probably one of the most important, even though I cannot prove it, uh, it's one of the most important uh, parts of your surgery. Your first rate needs to be reestablished, and you can use whatever you want to do that, a big cotton or, or a lapidus or a lapid cotton like I have been doing with uh, inserting a, a, a wedge into the lapidus procedure, but you have to bring your first rate down. And uh, if you have, and I just want to throw that out, but uh, if you have your, if your ligaments of the hind foot are still relatively preserved, especially the interosseous ligament, like we think for a cable varus deformity, when you bring the first ray up, if you bring your first ray down, most of your deformity on the hind foot is going to derotate and your peritelial stabilization will decrease significantly. As long as you were able to do that before the, the, the ligaments are completely gone, you know, or you have arthritis of your hind foot, and of course you wouldn't expect uh, the rotation, but even in an arthritic procedure, as I think Alistair also mentioned, or in Christian maybe as well, uh, if you're fusing your subtalar joint, 
it's as important you bring your first rate down there otherwise your ankle is going to go away uh, so it's paramount and mandatory um, but I don't have a formal quest, uh, answer to say which procedure you should do you just have to bring your first rate down as much as you can uh, Alistair here can I make a comment on one other procedure I use a lot for this which is the novicular fusion and um, if you look at your lateral x-ray um, your standing x-ray and Caesar will I'm sure in the future give us much better information on this the collapse is often at the novicular cuneiform joint and so the NC fusion, I think, is a very powerful way of correcting the forefoot once you've done your hind foot correction. However, NC fusions are technically challenging. Um, they have a relatively high non-union rate. Um, but if we can get our way around that in making it into a reproducible operation, um, I think that that's where a lot of the answer of the forefoot varus actually lies. Yeah, Alistair, uh, we, we published on that, on the uh, navicular cuneiform uh, ligament, which is, uh, I suppose, an anthropological continuation of tibialis posterior, but is a true ligamentous structure. Uh, I, I'm not promising to ha have all the answers to that, but we've uh, uh, tried both with allograft and with uh, synthetic ligaments, and I've shown some fairly good results, uh, both uh, uh, um, clinically and radiologically, in doing that, because I agree with you, uh, uh, a navicular cuneiform fusion is not an uh, operation that I would uh, uh, would gladden my heart in looking forward to. Uh, I found it a lot easier uh, uh, to uh, uh, do a, a ligament reconstruction. Fantastic. Um, thanks for answering that question. And we also have uh, Hash, who's up on stage. So Hash, if you would like to unmute yourself and ask a question to the panel, um, and I think that will be the final question um, for this evening. So Hash, go ahead. Hello, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much uh, for this fantastic, fantastic space. And, uh, you know, well done for putting it together. I'm sure it's been well received by everyone. Um, I've just got a quick one. Um, my name is Hash. I'm a musculoskeletal specialist physiotherapist. Uh, we're predominantly from Manchester in England, uh, but I do do some work nationally and internationally. Um, I was quite interested by, uh, Andy, what you said about um, the research into children and how the difficulty is, you know, in identifying those which will progress and which won't. Um, I guess I've got a part A and part B to mind. Is there is there any research that anyone knows of, um, you know, that looks at... Um, environmental factors, you know, things like footwear, um, socioeconomic status, things like that, activities in children internationally that can possibly identify uh, progressive factors. And and the last one is just, um, you know, is what, what would be the sort of key take-home messages for clinicians in primary care, like myself, you know, um, maybe that yourselves, uh, people like yourselves uh, would want us to know at this point. That's a really insightful question, Hassan. And uh, I think my, my view on this is, is pretty simple, which is that the majority of kids do um, do need a lot of help very early. And, and that, that natural history of children, when they're one and two, all have flat feet. So their foot shape develops as they develop. And it's not surprising that kids' feet, and I've, I've got pictures of my kids' feet um, from the ages of zero, to five um every you know pretty much every week i took a picture of it and, and what was interesting is they all have square feet and as they get older 
they get shoe-shaped feet. So it's not surprising that our foot moulds to the shoes that we put on them. And pretty much all kids' shoes have no arch supports, even the expensive ones like Start Right and, and the, the very expensive ones that, that, that are allegedly fit for kids' feet. They don't have any arch supports. And the logic is that the kids should gain their own muscular control. And I've got kids that have got high arches and other kids that have got flat feet. I'm talking about personally now. And uh, and so this has been a pet subject of mine for, for years. And, 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 and I do think that when I watch my kids with flat feet, they, they don't do any of the exercises that are necessary. And when I show them the exercise, you've got to make those exercises fun. And there, there's something that we haven't spoken about, but a very, very important uh, contributor is the tightness of your calf muscles. And in particular, the gastrox, which goes across three joints, the knee, the ankle, and the subtalar joints. And the gastrox tightness is something that's rarely addressed. And I see a lot of people focus on this knee-to-wall exercises, which is actually in my opinion, a complete waste of time because what you're doing is you're collapsing your foot and stretching your Achilles, leading to just further problems down the line. And what they should be doing is actually controlling their hind foot um, and stretching their gastrox with their knee straight. And um, as I said, finding exercises that kids can do that are not boring or that they won't do um, is, is a challenge. So I, I put it back to yourself, which is out in the primary care community. There should be better ways of looking at trying to address calf tightness in kids um, and better shoe wear that, that perhaps uh, um, uh, with longitudinal studies that can show a change in outcome. All of the studies that have ever been done have been short-term They've shown that kids don't wear insoles and they don't comply or don't are non-compliant with treatment. And therefore, the conclusion was incorrect. The conclusion are that insoles don't work. And that's not the correct conclusion. That's The conclusion is that kids don't wear insoles because their shoe shape changes and that you can't afford to have an insole every six months. So so there are, there is a desperate need to work um, and to develop studies um, in this area, looking longitudinally at kids' development of their foot shape and the tightness of their calf muscles. I'm Andian, done speaking. Fantastic. And um, Hash, does that answer your question, or is there anyone else who wants to add to uh, what Andy has said? Yeah, yeah, no, it's fantastic. I think you hit the nail on the head with the fact that, you know, more longitudinal studies are required. Uh, it's a very interesting area, and, and, you know, if we can compare that data set uh, internationally. I was also looking at sort of like cushioning for the, the around the sort of calcaneal area with, with trainers that have big, heavy cushioning and, and the point of, of heel strike during gait and, and, and how that can affect um, the sort of eccentric load and tip out and, and result in some gastric stiffness. And I'd be interested to hear, you know, some opinions on that as well. But obviously, I, I won't steal too much more of your time, but thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, guys. I think we're going to bring the room now to a close, but anyone that wants to stay on, um, some of the members of the uh, faculty or, or certainly um, the, the residents and myself will stay on for longer to answer anyone else's questions if they've got them. Um, but to be respectful of the um, esteemed faculty's time, um, we should really bring this room to a close. We, we've learned a huge amount tonight. We've, we've uh, learned that flat feet, um, despite it being 2021, and us being in a, um, a, a completely new world of technology, we're still um, uh, referencing studies from the 80s and still uh, unable to answer many of the questions in this area. And so it's great that everyone's now starting to reimagine the flat foot. And, and I think tonight we've had um, some, some great insights, the role of the forefoot, the complexity of the, the structure, the fact that the tibialis posterior 
uh, tendon is only one of a numerous um, important structures um, and should perhaps not be the emphasis of people that um, are thinking this is a problem and um, that uh, treatments perhaps may have to be considered earlier and um, we need better information to help patients ourselves to make uh, better treatment decisions. Um, I'd like to thank um, uh, the, every member of the faculty. Um, I'd like to thank the guys, the organisers of Bone Club, um, and I'd like now to hand over to Akid to um, uh, bring this to an end. Thank you so much, Andy, and thank you um, to all of the panellists and everyone who spent their uh, time with us. Um, and I, it's, it's amazing because uh, I think everyone here has really contributed um, and for myself, I'm very grateful because my understanding of the flat foot has, has changed following reading you know, these three papers and the discussion tonight. So thank you very much for that. And I'm sure that a lot of our audience members, those who are listening on YouTube and also those who will be listening to the podcast afterwards will also benefit from the learnings from tonight. So uh, to close us off, we are the Bone Club. This is the sixth journal club. We've had journal clubs in hip fractures, um, wrist fractures, elbows, you name it. And we've done it. We're going to continue with these journal clubs. They're held on Sundays. Um, but in addition to that, we have other rooms as well. So the next room that we have is actually on Tuesday. We're really, really excited. It's a room that's going to be about diversity in orthopedics. And we have an esteemed faculty joining us, including the president-elect um, for the BOA. So that's Professor Deborah Eastwood, as well as the Royal College of Surgeons of England president, um, Professor uh, Mortison. So we're really, really excited to have both of those uh, faculty members joining us on Tuesday. We also have faculty from overseas, um, outside of the UK. So we have Jen, um, Dr. Jen Weiss, who's joining us from California on Tuesday, um, and several other um, key speakers within diversity. And one of my colleagues, Karen, who you'll see down in the um, Followed by Listeners section, she'll be moderating that room, and we're really excited. So please do join us on Tuesday for a discussion about diversity in orthopedics and what should happen next to help us become a more inclusive specialty to make sure everyone benefits um, from being and having the opportunity of being a, a musculoskeletal specialist. Um, on that note, um, I just want to say that uh, to the panelists, thank you very much. If you want to stick on for a bit, you're more than welcome to. I think there were a couple more questions that people want to discuss. If you're busy and you need to, you need to get off somewhere, then um, please uh, feel free to get off. We're going to stop the recording now um, and we're going to stop this stream on YouTube and we'll just let this room carry on um, for anyone who does want to ask any last minute questions.